0: Hey, everybody, this is Matt Sparaza. Just a quick announcement before our episode begins. My co-host, Father Sam Kachuba, is doing a two-minute daily gospel reflection for Veritas Catholic Network. It's available on the radio at 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, or if you're out of range, it's available on our Instagram, thetangent__catholic. It's a very quick and easy way to get your daily dose of the gospel, I encourage you to look it up If you'd like to further support The Tangent Consider liking and subscribing on your preferred platform Consider looking us up on Instagram tangent underscore Catholic Or even donating at VeritasCatholic.com We appreciate all the help Enjoy the show
1: Matthew, it's an incorrect perception But it feels like I haven't seen you in a very long time yeah even though i know that i have even though we like we've recorded together recently for some reason it just feels like it's been a long time
0: yeah well i think things are moving at a fast pace now you know which is funny because it's summer for summertime yeah yeah it's funny
1: yeah like so our our recording pace has slowed down because of summer but like yeah but i'm feeling that that faster pace yeah I'm with yeah you. yeah did i tell you, you that
0: so <clears throat> this this gospel of john class that i was in with Mikael Waldstein, whose name I mispronounced in this upcoming episode. Um,
1: I know you mentioned it in the upcoming episode.
0: So, yeah. so he, well, I, I was all concussed and stuff, right? And <laughs> and when <laughs> yeah, of course you when I was concussed and stuff, I couldn't do anything but read. And I went and I okay. was reading Theology of the Body. And mm-hmm. guess who Translated Like
1: one does When they're concussed Yeah yeah
0: But guess who translated The theology of the body Mikhail Waldstein.
1: Uh Oh
0: Okay Isn't that funny And so if That's the whole, cool The whole experience Felt very providential In so far as I, I never intended To take a, an in-person class And the only reason I signed up for it Was because I got concussed
1: And stuff <laughs> Huh interesting all right yeah i can get behind that yeah i like that okay well so so here you are no longer concussed
0: yeah yeah i raised my hand in class uh to respond to one of his points and realized the point i was gonna make was just basically a quote
1: from his book (laughs) (laughs) like excuse me professor i'd like to quote you at you (laughs) to you Will you, this is you will you explain yourself to you by you <laughs> well anyway <laughs> you know, that's a good segue, I think. the, uh, the I'd like you to explain yourself, yeah. uh, because today we're talking to Casey Chalk, who is the author of The Obscurity of Scripture, Disputing Sola Scriptura, and the Protestant Notion of Biblical Perspicuity. That's out by Emmaus Road Publishing at org. And uh, Casey has, I think, a really fascinating take on uh, on, on scripture and in and biblical interpretation and, and how we can... Uh, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for, Matt? Answer some of the objections that our Protestant brothers and sisters might have, but also uh, bring to them some of our own questions about how they interpret yeah. scripture. And I think this is an important thing that he's yeah, getting. Yeah, absolutely. Really and
0: and to all of our listeners, I highly encourage that you listen to this episode, not only because it will personally benefit me, uh, but because I genuinely believe <laughs> that it will personally benefit you insofar as it will reveal Ooh. the presuppositions that you have when you read scripture. You will take note when you listen to this episode for my benefit that I mentioned this to Casey at least three times.
1: <laughs> for my benefit and yours, <laughs> um, please listen to this. Yeah. Now I, I I have to also be honest that I didn't read the book and I want to, I just didn't have time and I intend to read the book. I recommend this book, even though I didn't read it. That's how good I think this book looks, the little bit that I skimmed. And honestly, that's how impressed I am by Casey. He's he's a really intelligent young man, um, and I think he's doing some great stuff here for for the good of the church and for the the contribution to uh, biblical theology. Okay, now here we go. All right. Well, that was an adventure, huh? (laughs) i think i think we got it all figured out now this is this is good it's always yeah it's always fun matt you know when when we don't get the chance to actually sit across the table from each other for these uh Mm -hmm. that we're we're dealing with uh figuring out something there's something whether it's it's my microphone your headphones internet connections um guests it's great i love it i love it so yeah
0: and and casey you know just so you know the I would say the 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 greatest you know technological experiment we have had on this show was when Kristalina Evert got just totally kicked out of an interview mid interview, and then locked out of her phone because of a you know security measure they put on their Wi-Fi for their kids, and ended up finishing her awesome. episode on her daughter's iPhone.
1: It was great, you know. So it was it was great. So
0: finding earbuds it's over at the parental that's controls. That's totally fine.
1: And <laughs> Great. It's so good. It was great. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Casey, welcome. I uh, really appreciate you making the time to be with us on, on the tangent. Um, you've got a book out, The Obscurity of Scripture, Disputing Sola Scriptura, and the Protestant Notion of Biblical Perspicuity. Um, I'm not sure what perspicuity is, but I love the word. <laughs> <laughs> and I am really excited to talk about this book. Um, I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing. I need to like give that as a disclaimer, and I mean no offense by it. Um, but I I want to know the story. First, before we even get into the, the, the topic itself, Casey, how did you come to write a book like this?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Matt and Father. Uh, yeah, it's a great pleasure to be with you all. So um, Perspicuity, or... You know more at more layman's term would be uh, the doctrine of clarity. This was a Protestant doctrine that was actually very central to my own Protestant experience, both as an evangelical and then later as a Calvinist. And then it ended up becoming perhaps the most important doctrine for me as I um, considered some of the challenges to my own Protestant faith, uh, oftentimes uh, leveled by Catholic friends and writers that I knew. Um, and ultimately, one of the perhaps the most important reason why I converted to Catholicism had to do with the challenge of the Protestant doctrine of clarity, because I viewed it ultimately as the most foundational and essential of Protestant doctrines. Hmm. Where,
0: uh, may I ask, where are you from? I'm from Virginia. Okay. Cause I heard y'all and uh, I went, I went to school in Nashville, Tennessee. So this was me just hoping you were from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, But (laughs) But you know, Virginia is good too, man. Um, I am I am interested to hear. I mean, if if you wouldn't mind, could you share some details about your conversion story? Because my so my wife, uh, she was a she was a Presbyterian, which to my understanding is is pretty Calvinist, right? Um, now she didn't necessarily come to come to you know grips with something like perspicuity or obscurity of scripture, you know, however you want to phrase it but i do know that it was a big deal for her when when she, so she she ended up facing this idea that that the catholic church thought it got it all right like that was a big deal for her um so so aside from you know biblical perspec-
1: perspicuity what what were what was your conversion like he's going to say perspicuity as many times as he can in this interview just to like prove that he can say it correctly
0: yeah, yeah. and <laughs> and i think thus far
1: i haven't done it yet every time no you've nailed it you're good you're good you're doing fine yeah okay thanks so i was actually born catholic
2: uh baptized catholic okay um my family has been um in virginia for for a long time so catholic uh on both sides catholic families that were founding members of various parishes in the arlington Mm -hmm. diocese um which some of your listeners may have heard of because it's a really fantastic strong faithful diocese um but my parents left the Catholic Church uh, shortly after my first communion. Um, they were frustrated with some of the church's teachings. Um, I, I think maybe to some degree uh, also related to perhaps a lot of the turmoil and kind of like post-Vatican II Catholicism. where There just was a lot of confusion in terms of what the church taught. They were hearing different things from different people. Um, and, uh, and so they were, I mean, they didn't go to any church for a time, but eventually they landed in evangelical Protestantism. And during that whole time, I actually, I think I always had an inclination towards religion. My parents like to tell a story about how when we were still Catholic, we were visiting my grandparents, a very small Catholic parish in the mountains of Virginia. And uh, in the middle of the priest's homily, I raised my hand to ask a question because there was something I didn't understand. I think I was about six (laughs) six or seven years old. Um, So – you know, when when we were evangelical, there was sort of like the oh well, my our grand my, my grandparents are still Catholic. You know, it's it, I feel like I'm betraying them, but also evangelicalism had lots of qualities that I found very intriguing. the the very strong emphasis on personal faith and holiness and um, and uh, reading scripture. All of those things were very appealing to me. Um, but then. When I went to college at the University of Virginia, I started taking some secular uh, religious studies courses with innocuous sounding names like uh, Introduction to the New Testament and uh, introdu- you know, it's, uh, Paul's Letters, which yeah. offered really strong challenges to my own uh, evangelical uh, faith. And I realized that I hadn't really been given the intellectual tools that I needed, and I kind of found non-denominational evangelicalism to be um, – not very intellectually robust or, or coherent. And that's basically how I landed in Calvinism was looking for uh, a religious tradition that had more a, a, a historic claim to, um, to Christianity, something that a, a tradition that actually could try, yeah. try to draw on the early church. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I, and I found Calvinism to be a lot more intellectually
0: compelling. Um, it's it, so it was kind of like a, when you became a Calvinist, it was kind of like you were returning to orthodoxy.
2: I think I was moving in that direction a little bit. That's very interesting. Things. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I, I studied to be a Calvinist um, pastor. I was in seminary for a time after I uh, graduated. I, I studied to be a high school history teacher, so I have a master's in education. And then I went on for a Protestant seminary degree at um, Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., um, but during my time there, one of my best friends who was also studying at a, a separate Calvinist seminary, he converted to Catholicism. And that was a real gut punch for me Yeah, because, wow. uh, he was smarter than I was. And, uh, <laughs> so it was very difficult to debate him. I found a lot of his arguments to be, um, yeah, very strong, very difficult to challenge. And, um, he eventually returned to the dc area to get a phd in moral theology at catholic university so we then we had lots of time to chat and just over the course of i don't know a, a lot of months and in, in debating and me reading a lot of uh catholic literature both criticizing protestantism but also explaining the catholic faith in a way that i had never really had explained to me before um i was ultimately persuaded to return to the catholic church in my youth which i did in uh 2010 fall of 2010 and i actually my. My, it was, a, I guess, the second confession of my life because I had had first confession. When right, I was yeah. Eight years old, but it was with Father Thomas Joseph White at the Dominican House of wow. Studies. Which, um, wow, wow, that's awesome. Pretty,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, it's funny that you, so I just took a class on the Gospel of John at Franciscan University it's in Steubenville. Obviously, you know, this book is through a maze. Um, but I my my class was filled with... um. There was, I believe, there was either ten or eleven Dominican sisters, and and they all know him. That's why I, you know, bring it up. Uh, There was one priest from England and four lay people. I was the only married person in the class. Um, But but funny enough, I I think of him because I just started listening to the Hillbilly (laughs) Thomists, and and I I love their music. I think that they're actually tremendous lyricists. now,
1: Can I just say being in a class with with just a bunch of nuns sounds great? I love I love being around religious sisters and like It was yeah, really that cool. That must have been awesome.
0: Yeah, I uh now I haven't spent all that much time with religious sisters. Admittedly I did teach at a uh a Catholic school in Stanford that it, ironically it was the building I wanted and went to high school in, which is where I know father Sam, he was my chaplain <laughs> in high school. Um, but now me they old, closed Matt. that school. <laughs> yeah. They closed that school, which was a good thing. And they instead opened a school they run by nuns, a more, was, a more
1: Catholic school. <laughs> yeah. Um, spend some time with nuns, do yourself a favor. They're great. Yeah. The religious sisters are amazing.
0: Yeah. But,
1: but in yeah. this class,
0: my, my professor, Dr. Mikael Waldenstein, um, he he brought up this interesting point that I kept returning to when reading your book, which is that American Catholics are, to an extent, secretly Protestants, insofar as there are things that they have imbibed culturally um, that we aren't even aware of. Um, what, and now his example that he kept returning to in class was uh, the difference between common good and private good and how that kind of plays a role in atonement and um but but when I was reading your book I was reading the 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 Protestant position of the Holy Spirit will guide you in reading of scripture and and I'm sitting there going well yeah fair enough you know that sounds that sounds appropriate knowing that like obviously I would I would uh submit to the church and that's the difference but I'm curious what do you think um what do you think some of the I guess if a besetting sin is a sin you don't know about, right? What are some of the besetting heresies of an American Catholic?
2: Actually, I think the clarity of scripture might be a great example of that. And I was um, being interviewed by Douglas Beaumont, um, another convert from Protestantism to Catholicism, I don't know, maybe about a month ago. And um, he was kind of giving me a hard time because I actually (laughs) quoted him at the beginning of my book, citing him as an example of a Catholic who... Was using the language of Protestantism in regards to Scripture's identity as being clear. Now, you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't trying to right, to yeah, him. yeah, yeah, rhetorically punch him in the face or anything. I was more just, you know, citing citing a number of examples of how even Catholics can sometimes, um, you know, uh, kind of get into this Protestant language of Scripture being clear because. For, I think for a reason it's understandable, yeah. which is that it, it does have rhetorical power, right? When we say that scripture is clear, it kind of, it, it, it's it's emphasizing that, you know, like... So it oh my gosh, a lot of yeah, about you are John speaking 6,
0: my language, man. Uh, is,
2: <laughs> is a, yeah, John 6 is, is, a, is a demonstration of the clarity of scripture on the doctrine of the Eucharist, right? Which, you know, uh, I think is problematic. <laughs> it's problematic because um, there are millions of Christians who do not read John 6 that way. Now, we we could argue as many Protestants who believe in the doctrine of clarity uh, do and have done since the Reformation, accuse. Um, we could accuse Protestants of uh, bad motives or sin um, or being deceived by the devil or, or any number of things, and that's why they're not able to perceive the truths of the Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist in John 6. But I think that's immediately very problematic. Um, and that's kind of one of the issues that I get into the book is that the doctrine of clarity leads us to presume really terrible uncharitable things about our um brothers and sisters in christ or even just our our opponents um in in scriptural interpretation um and that's something i really want to avoid and encourage other catholics to avoid by sort of abandoning this language of clarity which has to some degree seeped into uh, (laughs) american catholic experience
0: yeah i i i admit when i read that portion of your book you know, uh, specific, I mean, it's at the beginning, right? But you're accusing this language of clarity. I was like, oh my gosh, I gotta change the entire way I try and evangelize. <laughs> the amount of times that I've been like, Scripture is so clear, <laughs> as my as my punchline. You know, is you know, unfortunately, often.
1: Can you say a little bit more, Casey, about this about this idea of the clarity of Scripture? Because there are some places where it seems pretty clear. It seems pretty clear-cut, straightforward, but then there are times where we know there's, there's a deeper meaning, there's more than just the, what appears to be the basic fundamental meaning of the, the plain language, right? Um, so what's the balance that we're supposed to strike with understanding Scripture as something clear versus Scripture as something that has many layers?
2: Well, it might be helpful before I directly answer that question to even back up a little bit and try to describe the doctrine of clarity as it's been understood within various yeah. Protestant traditions, going back to the um to the Reformation itself. So this was a doctrine that you can find basically amid all of the early reformers. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, the Anglicans, Cranmer in England, um any Protestant tradition. Um, from the 16th century is going to articulate some form of the doctrine of clarity, and uh, but it comes in, it, it does come in different forms, right? So perhaps the one that's most famous is the one that's found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's a Presbyterian creedal document from the 17th century from England, and uh, what those English Presbyterians argued was that Scripture is so clear that any Christian, regardless of intellectual ability or academic training, should be able to understand what is necessary for salvation um just by prayerfully humbly reading scripture um and uh, the necessary for salvation is very important because you know that's more or less what Luther and the other first generation reformers were arguing with the catholic church about at you know to some degree it's very core right is the protestant doctrine of sola fide the idea that christians are justified by grace through faith alone not by works right um So uh, sola fide and perspicuity or clarity very much are are interrelated. Um, But that said, lots of Protestants have various other definitions of clarity. Some will say that scripture is clear on the fundamentals uh, or essentials of the faith. Um, And then you kind of have to go, you have to kind of work out what, you know, what, what are those essential teachings? And then even some Protestants will argue that more or less all of scripture is clear, which I think. Probably most people if you know if they thought about it for a bit would find that not very defensible but but you can still find um, Protestants who will argue uh, for you know, scripture's total clarity um, so that said um there there well there's I mean I, need, I should probably even get into some of the other problems I talked about the problem of yeah. what um, clarity does in terms of uh, it how it leads um, those who believe in it to into uh, interpret their opponents or or perceive their opponents but it also alternatively it leads them to have a very high view of themselves because if scripture is so clear then obviously i i as the individual protestant reading it must be guided by the holy spirit i must in some sense have a special gift that god has given me i'm the righteous one um because Mm. the people who Mm. misinterpret it must be in some way uh sinful or deceived by the devil or, or or anything else um, but there's lots of other problems with the doctrine of clarity, right? I mean, um, there's historical problems. The fact that very quickly, uh, in in the the centuries that followed the Reformation, or even the the, the the generation or two within the the Reformation, you see a massive amount of splintering of uh, Protestants over various doctrines, many of which they would consider essential or necessary for salvation: baptism, the Eucharist, church polity. Um, Any number of doctrines, uh, Protestants were debating them and going in different directions and accusing others, the other side of being heretics. Luther himself called Zwingli, another first generation reformer, a heretic uh, over disagreements on the doctrine of the Eucharist. Um, And uh, that just Mm. perpetuates over time um, with no means of arbitration. uh, That in Protestantism, the only arbiter for disputes over scripture is scripture <laughs> so right which you know is uh, is very problematic um at a very foundational hmm. level but getting to your question father about um is scripture clear on anything i this is you know maybe maybe i'll do a second edition of the book because a lot of people have asked me about this and i think it's something i may be neglected to clarify in as much as detail as i should have which is that yes um scripture is we i think most Christians would agree, even even we as Catholics can agree that Scripture is clear in a, in a certain sense, which is that, you know, for example, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a Christian tradition that doesn't believe that Scripture teaches that God exists, right? So, like, Scripture seems to be clear enough right. that God exists. Scripture seems to be clear enough that Jesus is, uh, in some sense, an authoritative representative of God. Now, but again, we if we know our church history, we immediately know that well, there's lots of disagreements about. How exactly Jesus is an authoritative representative? Uh, you know, if we if we commit the Arian heresy, then we don't view him as co-equal uh, with uh, the Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, but you know, maybe or perhaps we we err in terms of understanding uh, his his nature and person, or the the number of wills that he has. Any number of these church heresies that ecumenical councils had to more or less like flesh out and uh, and then promulgate teaching. Uh, so I think that's demonstrative of the fact that even on something as what we might say is so si- simple and straightforward as cr- the, the doctrine of Christ is. Uh, I don't. I don't think Scripture alone is going to be able to get us there to to articulate what we as Catholics understand as a you know a ni- a Nicene Chalcedonian understanding of Christ's humanity and divinity. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Well, so in other words, you're, you're connecting this idea of the clarity of Scripture to what ultimately leads to the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, that everything that we need to know is is just plainly revealed to us in Scripture, but sola scriptura is itself kind of disproven by the fact that it's not in Scripture, um, but also by the fact that there are so many wildly divergent interpretations of Scripture.
2: Yeah, a hundred percent. And clarity is a is a uh, the, the history of the, of Protestantism over five centuries is a um, a very telling uh, demonstration of the problems with clarity. Given that um, Protestants have debated just a, name any theological topic, and Protestants have debated it and splintered into right. various denominations or churches
0: right. over
2: that particular now, doctrine. Now, is
0: it common for so I'm I mm. guess I'm thinking about you know specifically the the question of does Christ have a human will or or um I guess even if you didn't even want to go that nitty-gritty right you could just I guess my question is this is it common when an issue comes up for a Protestant to say well that's just a non-essential doctrine we can we can we can differentiate oh, on yeah. this so long as you accept A B and C like me
2: Yes. And I think that's what we've seen over the course of Protestant history is that at the very beginning in the first generation, Protestants had a, they had a very long list of what they considered the essentials, right? That's why Luther right. is condemning Zwingli as a heretic over his right. very symbolic understanding of the Eucharist. Now, I think you would be hard pressed to find very many Protestants that would be willing to you know, say that, oh, you have to have the right understanding of the Eucharist. That my particular, whatever it is, Protestant or Lutheran or Methodist. And if you're not, then you're not a Christian, right? No, it's, it's become, uh, it, I think Protestantism has gone further and further towards um, a very minimalist perspective on what are hmm. considered the essentials, um, which is also problematic because if you get to a point where you say, well, all, all that you have to do is make a profession of faith in Christ, and that's all that is required in order to be a Christian and all the rest of scripture and all the rest of the doctrines of Christianity are, you know, sort of irrelevant, then you don't really have much of a Christianity upon which to stand. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's, it's interesting. I have two thoughts. First, it's that this is yeah. kind of putting into perspective what non-denominationalism is for me. This idea that like, okay, we're, it's basically like agree to disagree as long as you've got those three, you know, and no, I'm not rhyming on purpose but oh what was it oh oh i i'm 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 curious how it works with so again now i just i just took a a class on the gospel of john so it's on my mind but at the end of john chapter 2 jesus refuses to entrust people who have made an act of faith in him um and the idea behind it is that the act of faith they have made is in a counterfeit form of christ right so this is this is equivalent to uh, the people who are laying down the palm branches as Christ enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Well, you know, what do you know? That's something that they used to do for military victory with the Maccabees. You know, so it's like we see this idea that they think Christ is this military king. You know, and that's why Hosanna so quickly becomes crucify him. Um, but I wonder if there would that would even be something that that could work within the realm of Protestantism. This idea that the christ you believe in might not actually be christ you know like if i i don't know am, am i making sense there if if everything <laughs> no. no if if, <laughs> if if scripture is so clear that you know if scripture is so clear that i can understand it immediately you know and yet we differ how do you, how do you recognize which Christ is correct is basically, and is there, it seems like the idea that there being a correct Christ and a correct teaching from Christ has been totally lost, you know? So it's, I guess it's that idea that you said, you know, that they would accept, I mean, we would all accept each other as Christians, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud, I guess. Um, it's the idea of, of putting your faith in a counterfeit Christ is really what I'm trying to get at. Um, I don't know.
2: I think it's going to differ broadly from one Protestant tradition, and even individual Protestants, one from another. So, for example, I can think of the Unitarians, the Universalists, right? Their perspective on Christ is, yeah, greatly skewed because they don't actually believe that Christ is the God-Man. They've re- they've rejected um, his uh, his divinity. So, in that sense, I think you can you can see that there are certain forms of Protestantism that are doing what you are talking about, Matt, in terms of more or less rejecting Christ as he truly is. Um, but, I mean, other Protestant um, traditions have, can, can oftentimes have a very strong Christology. Actually, something very interesting that I learned earlier this year, I, was, uh, I got a chance to meet Carl Truman, who is a, a very um, popular and intelligent uh, Presbyterian, um, I guess you'd call him sort of like a theologian or philosopher historian. He's kind of every all everything all wrapped into one. He's not far from you, Matt. He's in Grove City teaching at Grove City, and something he told me something very surprising that um, Father Thomas Wynandi, uh, a, a you know a really fantastic Catholic uh, theologian and scholar, is actually viewed very positively within a lot of uh, Protestant Reformed circles uh, for his teachings on Christology, and that kind of gave me a lot of hope to hear mm-hmm. that. Um, a lot of Protestants would not be averse to right. um, to a, you know to a Catholic, a, an ordained Catholic theologian, no less, to help them better understand uh, the the nature of Christ Himself. Yeah, hmm.
1: you know this. This is one of those areas, though, where I, I think if we're talking about the like the average American Catholic, I think we all suffer from this in a certain way that we might look at the similarities. And and almost overemphasize the fact that we're we're so close on so many things. There there are so many aspects of what we believe about the about the Bible. There's so many places where we can recognize, yeah, I I believe the same thing that my Protestant neighbor over here believes. So what's what is it that's really keeping us apart? That we can almost minimize the fact that there are still in fact differences. And I, I had this conversation with uh, a friend of mine who's an Episcopalian minister. And in the conversation, he said, I I see how often there are so many things that we're so close on, but then there are these things where I know that our theology is different. I know our interpretation is different. And so even on the stuff where we'd we'd pick a passage of of scripture and we talk about it and we'd come to the same conclusion, right? Um, Things that that we'd, we'd, we'd hold in common. And there were still these things where our understanding about this aspect, maybe not necessarily of uh, scripture, especially or particularly, but some aspect of sacramental theology or, or ecclesiology or something like that is it, it is different. So like recognizing that there's that there's also this this difference, recognizing that we are not quite together, but at the same time, how easily we can fall into that attitude of we're all basically the same. You know, like that's that's kind of where I see this yeah. this happening. It's not just that the it's happened to the to the protestant denominations it's happened to us as catholics too and to keep that actually i think the the better thing is if we keep that that serious intellectual rigor that says hey, let's ask these questions let's talk about this let's let's recognize those places where we're not quite lined up on this let's get into that let's figure it father, out father that's we might really do ourselves some good that's that's
0: kind of what i was trying to say which is you know i was trying to say that in John two, when he doesn't entrust himself to someone, it's because they have this counterfeit view of him, right? And so it's I. I mm. It seems to me that what has happened in Protestant circles, in Catholic circles, is this idea that despite the fact that we disagree, we all just think we've got the same thing, you know, like like this. The disagreements haven't, you know, but born the fruit that they should.
1: I always go with. Yeah. My my interpretation of that particular passage in John 2 is always that he's saying, no, you got to read to the end of the book. You can't say you Hmm. love this book. It's your favorite book until you've read the whole thing. You're only in chapter two. You got to read to the end. Then tell me what you think. Yeah. And
0: and perhaps, right, I'm being too strong and on my own personal interpretation Um, and I'm open to being corrected. So, (laughs) but you're not the Pope. No, I'm kidding.
1: (laughs) a good point. I am not the pope. That's if I were true. in
0: a papal conclave, I vote for you.
1: <laughs> oh no! Don't say terrible things that you don't mean. <laughs> is is scripture obscure? Then Casey?
2: Yes, I, I think it is. A, it's obscure, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I think in the, the Catholic Church is actually I think it, in many respects always taught that. I think it's a teaching that you can find in the patristic tradition. Certainly something that you can find mm-hmm. in um, the medieval scholastics and most certainly something that uh, Catholic counter-reformation thinkers like Francis de Sales and Bellarmine, uh, St. Robert Bellarmine argued. And I mean, it's it's obscure, not because this, you know, this gets into one of the Protestant um, criticisms of Catholicism as they'll say like, well, by claiming that scripture is obscure, you are impugning God with not being able to speak clearly. Well, but the question is, does God intend for his communication to be such that every single individual person on the planet, or or maybe if we want to reduce it, every single person who believes that he or she is a Christian is supposed to receive immediate divine um, in, uh, power to be able to interpret Holy Scripture? That does That's not a paradigm. I, this is what I would argue to Protestants who I, who I think know their Old Testament. That's not a paradigm that we see at work even in the Old Testament, right? Like Moses is a great example Hmm. of this. He is an intermediary authority between God and the people of God about what God intends for them, who he is and what his teachings are. Um, And we see that paradigm at work throughout the rest of the Old Testament, certainly with David and the prophets. Um, But even we can say that Jesus himself is an example of that. Jesus himself is an intermediary authority um, between... Uh, between God and the people of God, and then I mean, Protestants I would hope would even recognize that in a sense, the writers of the New Testament themselves are also serving in that intermediary role because they're the ones writing um, God's word, uh, inspired, uh, infallible word uh, to be obviously to be read and and, um, and to be integrated into the lives and hearts of, of the faithful. Um, but someone has to serve that role. So what I, I think what I would argue is that God does not seem to have intended for us to have that sort of immediate relationship with him and his word, where we're just, we can all be individuals on our own islands, reading scripture and uh, and all magically coming to the same understanding of who he is and what what he intends his word, how he, how he intends his word to be understood. Because obviously that has not happened. It's never happened. We've always required some sort of authoritative interpreter. Um, and as I argue in the second half of the book, yeah. I think that the Catholic magisterium makes a very, strong and compelling case for why it itself is that uh, authoritative interpreter.
1: Hmm. I remember in seminary reading uh, Scripture in the Tradition by Henri de Lubac and, and reading Scripture in the Tradition and you get into the, all of the, the stuff about uh, the different senses of Scripture, reading about the the different ways of interpreting Scripture, reading also then about the Fathers. And you mentioned patristic theology and, and how the Fathers of the Church read Scripture. Um, it can can you talk a little bit about the importance of looking back at that patristic era, looking back at what the Fathers of the Church said and, and how that consensus and how that consistency in the way that they understood different biblical texts has has formed a real foundation for how we then interpret the Bible?
2: So this is something that was very foreign to me as an evangelical because, in many evangelical traditions and churches, um, there's a real ignorance when it comes to the church fathers. There may be a little bit of knowledge of, for example, Augustine and his confessions, but of the broad um, writings of the early church fathers, there, there's very little knowledge of that. There are some Protestant traditions where there's much more of an emphasis on the need to consult um, these early generations of Christian thinkers and writers to inform their interpretation. Um, but as I argue in the book, even for those Protestants who have a very high view of, you know, name your church father, um, Justin Martyr, Athanasius, uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, any of them, there's, there's still a arbitrary and ad hoc um, application of those teachings, right? So no Protestant hmm. um, that I know of um, is going to embrace what the early church father's uh, opinion is of Mary. Um, because like you said, Father, there is a consensus. Now, I think this is oftentimes misunderstood by Protestants. Protestants say, well, what do you mean by consent? They presume that what consensus means is that you're going to find a perfect, absolute agreement between every church father on every issue. And that's not what right. the Catholic <laughs> Church has taught about what consensus means. Consensus is is underst- there's, it's a little bit more ambiguous than that, but it's more that when you, look, w- when you consult the church fathers in their entirety from... The very earliest church fathers, like Clement of Rome and uh, Ignatius of Antioch, um, all the way to the I think you know, the people differ about which church father is considered the last one. Whether it's Isidore of Seville, or I think right, I even right. heard like Saint sometimes is listed as the last church father. Um, wherever you put that, it's it's more about what did, what, what um, consensus do we see amongst them on certain doctrines? What is the what is the broad consensus? You may find individual cases where. For example, Tertullian or Origen, or you know, in some of the battles that uh, uh, Saint Jerome and Saint Augustine had over you know various doctrines, you may find some sure. disagreements over there, but you're going to find broad consensus amongst many of them over many doctrines. For, whether we're talking about Mary or the episcopacy or even the um, primacy of the Bishop of Rome, um, and the re- and to your point, Father, also the reason why this is so important is because if like when I was an evangelical, if we neglect the church fathers and just say you know the Bible is good enough, we're 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 really um, we're impoverishing ourselves because the church fathers these are the earliest extra biblical um, sources for how to grapple with what Scripture teaches, and so if we just ignore them, then there becomes this massive hole in our understanding of what Scripture teaches. Because what what ultimately happens is it's the the we have the Bible, and then you just fast forward to Luther and Calvin. Right, like fifteen hundred years of church history yeah. and biblical interpretation is just thrown out the window. And really, if we're going to be honest, most Protestants haven't even read Luther or Calvin. So you're more like talking about fast forward to, I don't know, like the mid twentieth century and when Protestants start reading yeah A, a-, a- W Ew- well, a- 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 Tozer or J I Packer. And so like then it's I mean it's a, a real impoverishment, um, intellectually in terms of their knowledge of all of church tradition. Rather,
1: actually, so we've seen th- this. Th- yeah, we've seen these these videos recently on YouTube of like Francis Chan talking about the Eucharist and he's he's getting into this idea of like for the first time he's discovered the fathers of the church. He's he's reading the patristics and he's talking about how he's realizing this whole chapter of history. So it's not just the the scripture that's there, which he understands and he's able to read, but he's then finding out how historically the fathers of the church read those scripture passages. And I'm not quite sure where he stands right now. I'm not quite sure what, what has been happening for him as as he goes through that, but he's he's coming to a deeper understanding of the scripture by virtue of the history that's present in the way that that, uh, that, that exegesis has taken place. Well, if if he's anything like
2: many of the other Protestants, like uh, you know, Cardinal Newman or uh, Peter Craft, then reading the reading the patristics is only going to eventually lead to one place.
0: Yeah, amen. <laughs> what uh, what advice do you have uh, regarding going about these conversations with someone who is who is Protestant and and I guess in two ways. First, someone who isn't, you know isn't well studied, but not, not out of, not out of neglect, you know, like there's no, no ill, ill will here. Um, But, you know, say grew up Presbyterian or grew up, you know, Methodist or whatever.
2: So um, the way that I would encourage readers to use this book for ecumenical conversations is more just to invite Protestants into a conversation about this doctrine. Um, And, you know, if there are anything like, the the Protestants that I knew as an evangelical, they probably have never even heard of this, but that presents an opportunity because you can actually share with them something. Hey, I've heard about this Protestant doctrine. Are you familiar with this? And they say, no, I I've never heard of clarity or perspicuity or whatever. You say, well, this is generally what I understand that it teaches. Do you believe that? Right. And you can sort of, you know, uh, communicate the, you know, the basic contours of the doctrine and ask them if they believe it and and then from there, you know, sort of say like, well, I I read some challenges to that, or you don't even have to say like, um, you don't have to even be that aggressive. You could just ask like, well, how do you, if scripture is so clear that you know, and however they understand it, how do you explain all of these different opinions, you know, with within Protestantism, yeah, um, over over scripture's meaning, and just kind of invite them into that, that that kind of conversation to help have them explain you know, why there, why there are so many different Protestant interpretations of a book that is supposedly, you know, clear that any person should be able to understand its plain meaning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it seems that a more gentle approach would just be more effective. You know, I, I, I don't, I father, Sam, what are you laughing at? But no, but I. Well,
1: I think I think you're right that a gentle approach is usually a good idea. I mean, when you when you decide to start a conversation by punching someone in the nose, yeah. uh, it tends to put a damper yeah, on things. Yeah, you know? that's fair. When you can, I've never done that. When you can but come sure. at it from a, a more generous approach, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's good. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I had cut you off before. When, when we go. talk
1: about these things, Sorry. Yeah, when we talk about this, um, I I see I see kind of parallel. I don't know, parallel pitfalls. I don't mean to use alliteration like that, but I, I see these these things coming up where, all right, on the one hand, we might ask uh, we might ask our, our Protestant brothers and sisters to explain to us why there're such varying interpretations. Um, and then on the other hand, you'll hear people make the argument that because there's such a variety of interpretations that that proves uh, that there's something that's not true about scripture because there doesn't seem to be consensus right now this would get into i think we have to understand the, the the difference of an authoritative interpretation versus non-authoritative interpretation so like with every layer you're just peeling back something more that you have to that you have to dive into and and explain so maybe this is where the american mentality comes in too much we're we're used to that idea of majority rule so the more people you have on your side the more your point is strengthened even if your point is wrong, I'd have a lot of people who believe it, so it must be true, right? Um, and that, of course, doesn't work logically. Well, how then do we peel back those layers so as to best explain to people not only all right, not only that, that Scripture has many layers to understand, but also to help them to understand that the way to interpret it actually has an authoritative key. You know, this is what the catechism gets us to. This is what the, the fathers point us to, that there is actually an authority that is capable of interpreting scripture. But so often we treat the Bible as another book that you can pick up off the shelf and that's it. Anybody can read it. Anybody can can talk about it. Anybody can interpret it any way that they want. So w- what can help us to get to that place where we say, actually, a book like this requires some authoritative interpretation. And here's how we know what the authoritative interpretation is. So, um, this is another thing I wish that I, I, I
2: probably could have done a little bit of a better job really hammering down in the book, which is that um, I also don't. I'm not arguing that scripture is so obscure that no Christian, um, unless they're Catholic and you know in communion with uh, <laughs> with the church, is able to get anything out of the Bible. Obviously, that's not true. Because I got plenty of things out of the Bible when I was a Protestant. And many of my Protestant brothers and sisters read their scripture and ultimately come to the same opinion as I do on many things. Um, so, but the, the issue is that they have no means of a, a, an objective confirmation of their interpretations. What they amount to is a, a subjective uh, opinion and interpretation. Now, as a Catholic who can appeal to the magisterial authority of the church. I can say, well, they came to the right one. Good job, you got it right. But any time that they disagree over anything, which they're going to do, and they're and because scripture, um, scripture is a very difficult book. It's written by you know, a, I don't know what I think it probably has at least forty authors written three languages over about a thousand year period. Right? I mean, to think that you could just open this up, two thousand years removed from the last book of the of the New Testament and just be able to understand everything in it. I mean, only the most arrogant person could possibly think that. Um, So you are going to need some means of adjudicating these disagreements. And the reason why the Catholic Church has a legitimate and very credible and defensible claim to this is something that uh, the Church talks about in the Catechism as the motives of credibility. Motives of credibility are extra-biblical proofs that demonstrate that the Church is who she claims to be. Um, it refers to things like its uh, unity over time, its holiness, the fact that you know, what, what, holier, what, what other church has holier saints than, than that of the Catholic Church, but also the miracles that have been performed. Um, certainly, there's, you, know, you can make the case for the miracles that happen within the Bible, but also the miracles that have taken place over um, 20 centuries of church history, right? I mean, even just the Marian apparitions alone, anybody who considers the Marian apparitions... With uh, a open mind uh, and charitable, uh, you know, willingness to consider them on, on the bare facts would, uh, would, I, I would think, would be persuaded that they have very strong credibility. So there, there are many other proofs um, that uh, that the catechism talks about, but it's things like that that can persuade people without returning again to the endless debates over the interpretation of individual biblical passages. That can kind of provide a way out to helping them see that the Catholic church is who she claims to be.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I, I believe it's Pope Benedict the 16th that speaks about how, if you want to have an authoritative book, you have to have an authoritative interpreter. Like they, they go hand in hand and I've, I've always found that really, really persuasive. Just the idea that I, hmm. there's just no way, if it's up to me, there's just no way I'm getting it right. You know, like across the board. <laughs> Just not, it's not happening.
1: If it's just up to you. No, definitely not. <laughs> the good news
0: is that you don't belong no. to the Church of Matt.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thank God. That's so good. We often, we often use the stereotype that our, our Protestant friends and neighbors know the Bible better than the rest of us. And, and you made reference to it before that when you were a Protestant, you, your friends, you read the Bible and you, you gained a lot from it you took a lot from it and a lot of times Catholics think they don't know the Bible very well uh, the more we the, the more I, I am in parish ministry the more I see how how well actually Catholics really do know their scripture they just don't know that they know their scripture really well but they like they get there eventually but a lot of people when when invited to the to the idea of actually reading scripture uh, come up against that just it's too intimidating it's, it's too big of a book and, and they think it's too obscure. It's too much for me to understand. Um, where would you encourage people to get started if they, if they want to understand scripture and, and really dive into it? What's the method that, that you find has been most effective for you?
2: Um, when I first converted to Catholicism, um, I, it was not long after uh, Ignatius Press had published the New Testament Study Bible um, that I think was done by Scott Hahn and Curtis mm. Mitch. And uh, what a fantastic resource that was because it just had, I mean, certainly it had really robust and uh, and, and enlightening and, and instructive endnotes or footnotes that explained a lot of these biblical passages, but also, you know, a lot of, like, uh, in like individual one or two page chapters, kind of going deep on particular doctrines and and, um, and debates uh, over various you know New Testament passages. So I think I found resources like that to be very helpful. And of course, you know, the Scott Hahn wrote the Ford this book. I mean, he's a prolific uh, commentator, but you know, he's just one of many fantastic um, Catholic you know uh, scholars, New Testament and Old Testament scholars who are able to bring um, Holy Scripture to life. Um, so the Catholic Church and I, th- mm. I think I also agree with you father I think that the the claim that Catholics don't really know their Bible I don't I don't really know if that's as true as even a lot of Catholics think it is because we hear if you go to mass every Sunday within a couple of years you're gonna have heard the vast majority of the Bible you just you have you will have heard it as long as right. you faithfully attend Mass every- um and uh so yeah like c- Catholics don't necessarily we don't Catholics are not as good on memorization of individual biblical passages that's because that's something that is very much emphasized in certain evangelical communities. Um, But Catholics know their scriptures well. They just need, you know, a little bit of help from well-trained scholars and theologians um, to kind of help bring it to life and make sense of it. But thankfully, I mean, we live in a time of just endless resources. Um, I mean, you don't don't even have to buy, If you don't have resources to buy books. I mean, a lot of this stuff is available online for free, fantastic podcasts and other video lectures that are available on YouTube that are done by a lot of these great scholars. Not just at, you know, certainly at Steubenville with people like um, Scott Hahn, but the the Augustine Institute. Um, There's, there's, I mean, just endless amounts of uh, great resources for Catholics to go deep on Holy Scripture.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you bring up the, the forward to your book here um, and, and that you mentioned him a couple times here is Scott Hahn, friend of the show, uh, Uncle Scott, as we call him. Uh, he's, he's a great guy. We, we, we really love Scott Hahn. So like just departing a little bit from, from the subject matter, um, Casey, tell me like on a personal level, what was it like to have Scott Hahn write the forward to your book? This is this is not a, a lightweight at all. This is a, this is a big time thing. So, what was it like for you to have Scott Hahn write the forward to this book?
2: <clears throat> well, I suppose this is the first time I've told this story in any of the interviews. But um, I've known Scott <laughs> for a number of years. I got to meet him a, not long after I converted to Catholicism. He invited me and a bunch of other people to come out to Steubenville and spend a weekend with him, which was. Really fantastic! I got to do that a couple of times because he he has done a really great job going back to you know not long after he converted to the faith and became a professor at Steubenville of kind of encouraging and taking um, former Protestants, uh, pr- pr- Protestant seminary students and pastors and theologians under his wing and kind of helping them to, you know to find their place within the church. And I was part of a group that he had you know he was doing that for um, mm. and. Uh, I've reviewed a number of his books over the years for various Catholic publications. So he and I, you know, we, we, we had a, a friendship, um, already. And, uh, when I mentioned to some folks at Emmaus road that I was you know, interested in writing this book and, and they, um, they pitched it to him and Scott said, I, I want this book. Uh, he, he was, uh, he was very persuaded that a book needed to be written exclusively on this topic because there is no book length treatment criticizing the doc, the Protestant doctrine hmm. of clarity. And uh, he said you know he, he w- really wanted Emmaus Road to get this and I said um, all right Emmaus Road can have it if Scott Hahn writes the
1: forward <laughs> <laughs> so you drive a hard bargain I like that that's good <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. awesome no I mean I, I I was struck too with with this book um, because like you said it's it's a very particular topic I mean you get you get right to to this point and it's in a certain way, I don't want this to discourage people from reading it because I think this is a, a really worthwhile book to, for people to pick up but in a certain way this is this is a a very academic scholarly work on on a topic that a lot of people don't know exists and I love that you've written something like that and and put it out and it's it's right there in on the Emmaus Road site with all the other stuff that's out there because, like, we need to actually engage with these ideas and we need to engage with ideas that we've not heard of. I I have a thousand and one books about, you know, the the lives of saints or or the different Marian apparitions or the, um, like understanding the Eucharist better from from a biblical perspective. You know, there's there's a ton of those books, but you're right. Scott Hahn nailed it. There's there's not many books that are addressing this particular issue, this particular subject, and for you to go and give this this treatment is is fantastic. Um, it's it's really nice to have a book like this that's out there and that's also accessible. It's it's a scholarly work, but this is accessible to anyone.
0: I want I want to jump on and say, this book, this book addresses presuppositions. I, I mean, again, I'm saying it personally because yeah. this is what I was saying before. It just addresses presuppositions I didn't know that I had, you know. And and that's the kind of work that that will change the way that you read scripture because it's it's kind right. of hit, you know it's hitting what you already think, <laughs> you know. Like before before you don't even know this is how you're reading in the first place, <laughs> and it's and it's addressing the issue. Um, and so w- what I'm curious about is you know. I'm curious about how I will move forward, you know, when I when I r- move forward reading scripture. That is obviously uh, knowing that I had kind of had these underlying assumptions, you know, like I I literally wrote in one page of the book, and it's going to sound silly, you know, but I was like, it it was it was the idea of the Holy Spirit guiding the individual reader to knowing the meaning, and I was like, surely God would guide you know, let's say a homeless man lived apart from Christ's whole life, picks up the Bible last couple minutes, gets it, gets it in just in time. Surely the Holy spirit's going to guide him to faith, you know, but like not realizing that's not the point, you know, Um, it's, that's like a, that's like a, that's like one of those, you know, what if, you know, the guy comes to faith right before he gets hit by a car, is he saved? You know, it's like one of those kind of situations. Um, But but it's it, the it, same it, questions
1: that he was asking in high school. By the way, Casey, exactly I, the same questions. What
0: I'm trying to say <laughs> is, I'm basically still in high school. No, um, I, I, <laughs> but but I really did, you know, I really did have these presuppositions that I didn't, I didn't know I had, you know. Like I'm, I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty versed in apologetics, you know, um, and I didn't know that this doctrine existed, you know. I like I've, I've got my go-to quips about sola scriptura. You know, if Sola Scriptura is true, which books are in the Bible?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that that's a good way to say it, Matt, that I, I, I would say, too, I didn't realize that this was something that was set up as like a doctrine in Protestant thinking. I think I've always been more on the defensive side of, all right, I'm going to defend Catholic doctrine when there's a, an objection raised by by a Protestant I haven't always realized that the Protestants actually have their own set of intellectual objections themselves that we could critique and and I don't mean that in the sense of like let's just go to war and see whose ideas are, are bigger and better and and whose ideas hit harder but that there's there, there's actually some some ideas that might be worthy of serious engagement I just I, I've always been more on the defensive end not so much on the let's no, well, let's talk about what you think, and and let's let's look at that.
2: <clears throat> well, that's very much the intention of this book. The, what I argue um, is that the perspectivity of Scripture. It, I think you're you're both right. I mean, this is a doctrine that not even many Protestants are aware of, like it's in in the way that they're aware of sola fide or sola scriptura or these other classic Reformation doctrines. But it's in the air they breathe, and it's it's so foundational. It's like I, I don't know if I can think of a corollary in the, in the Catholic tradition, but it's just so deeply Im, imbued within Protestantism that it's almost like they don't need to explicitly teach it because it's just presumed everywhere. Like you said, Matt, it's it's a presupposition right. that goes before everything else. But very, very much my intention with this book is to move beyond the way that, that Catholic apologetics has often been done, where kind of to your point, Father, is that we're oftentimes we're on the defensive where we say, well, you no, know, Protestants. I have five great biblical passages that prove to you the Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist. And I'm not I'm not saying necessarily that that's entirely wrong-headed because, of course, we as Catholics truly do believe that all of our doctrines originate in Holy Scripture. But um, it also we're, we're sort of playing into the Protestant game every time we do that because they need to first. Like come to grips with their own way of interpreting scripture through this paradigm of clarity, which is so deeply flawed and indefensible. And so I do kind of want uh, Catholics to bit to go on the offensive a little bit. Again, not not in an uncharitable way, not in an aggressive or mean spirited way. I've seen a lot of the commentary on social media from Protestants regarding my book, and even from some Catholics trying to defend me. And I. I, I really, I frown at a lot of that because I, I view it as just so unproductive in the way that we deal, you know, in, mm. in ecumenical conversations. I don't want this to be, you know, like ammunition to just destroy Protestants. That's the, <laughs> that's not the goal. The goal is to charitably and graciously help Protestants to see that the intellectual foundation of their own belief system is is just... Uh, it. it there it's so weak that there's nothing to stand upon. Um, and that they need something mm. stronger. They need something more robust that will help them to make sense of this, this gift of Holy scripture, which they love, which has benefited them and blessed them so much. They need something stronger to help them navigate it and navigate this world. Um, so I'm hopeful that, um, a lot of Protestants will read that and see that my, um, I hope I I hope I pray that I have written in such a way that it's it's winsome and uh, and is not you know viewed as uh, you know malicious um, or mean spirited but really it it an invitation into a conversation about what I what I think really is the most essential of their beliefs.
1: Yeah, well, to to realize that we have things that we can defend, we can we can speak to the truths of our faith and defend them, but we can also engage and, and go out and say, hey, tell me about this thing that you profess. That we can do, we can do both things, and it, it's possible to kind of have that that ongoing conversation. The image that came to mind, and this is probably a bad image, but I was I was thinking about this this episode of Ted Lasso, where he's inspired by the triangle offense of the Chicago Bulls of the early '90s, and so as he's he's thinking about it, he tries to apply the triangle offense to soccer and he ends up discovering something that's already in existence called total football and he's never heard of this before because he doesn't know anything about soccer and so the coach the rest of the coaches have to explain to him what total football is he thinks he's come up with this great thing called uh the triangle offense and it's it's nothing it's not that at all but they start to apply it and he realizes that everybody kind of moving and doing these these different things so on the one hand uh, i'm going to defend the catholic faith i'm going to have my apologetic arguments and then on the other hand i'm also going to say hey, can you explain something to me about this this doctrine of clarity that you believe in? Um, explain what, what we're talking about there. We can do both of these things. I, I think it's really good. Now, may I tangent for a second here? Um, because this brings me to a question that has been burning on my mind. Ted Lasso goes abroad, and we know why Ted Lasso went abroad. Casey, you are the first uh, guest on the tangent to come to us from another country.
2: Um. <laughs> <laughs> um actually my first book is about my experience um living in Thailand and getting to know um the a very large um Christian asylum seeker population who had fled religious persecution in Muslim countries wow. and had fled to Thailand. Tell me a little bit about that asylum community. Yeah. So that book's The Persecuted, it's with Sophia Institute Press, came out about two years ago. Um it's mostly Pakistanis, uh evangelicals and Catholics. And, uh, if folks know anything about Pakistan, it's one of the most, uh, inhospitable and hostile places to be a Christian in the world, even though it does have a, a very, a, a large, uh, Christian population, large Catholic population. It's, uh, has very historic ancient roots. Um, uh, Pakistan has embraced, uh, certainly a, a lot of everyday, um, Pakistanis on the streets, but even to some degree, the, the government itself has embraced a very rigid, um, and, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, extremist form of Islam. Um, it's against the law to uh, blaspheme the Quran or Allah or Muhammad. And you can be sentenced to death, according to Pakistani law, wow. for that. And a lot of Pakistani Muslims use those laws as weapons against Christians, sometimes for no other reason than simply spite or you know just hatred of the other. Um, and so uh, Pakistani Christians by the thousands have fled. Uh, to um, Thailand in particular, because it's really easy to get there. There's a 30 day visa that basically anybody can get. You just fly into Suvarnabhumi airport in Bangkok and you can get that visa and then just try to disappear into the local economy. So um, I think they estimate that in Bangkok alone, there's about 10,000 um, of these asylum seekers who have fled from Pakistan, but certainly other places too. I, we met folks who were from Palestine, central Asia, lots of Africans uh, like Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, um, and uh, a lot of them just basically are waiting there. Uh, they they submit an application to the United uh, Nations High Commissioner for Refugees to get refugee status, so they can get placed in a third country like the United States wow. or Canada, the Netherlands. But that time that can take a long time. Some of the Pakistani Catholic friends we we got to know at our local parish are still there, and we met them. I mean, they were there in 2012. Some of these folks wow. are still there, just kind of waiting. Now you
0: said that there were a lot of, a lot of these refugees were both evangelical and Catholic. Did that inform your view of, you know, ecumenism basically? Uh, I mean, recognizing that you yourself are a convert. And so a ton of it's going to come from that, but, but did that experience form you as well?
2: Oh, 100%. So, um, the other part of the story, which is really sad is that, The Thai authorities periodically will do these raids and pick up a lot of these people and throw them into detention centers, which are really nasty, um, disgusting places. And people are packed into cells in large numbers and um, just, yeah, really unhealthy Mm -hmm. folks have died in these places. The BBC even has done, you know, specials where they've secretly gotten cameras in there to videotape um, and show what the conditions are like inside of there. So we would go um, and visit. Um, especially once our friends, some of our, our close friends from the Catholic parish were detained there for about, oh my gosh, nine, 10 months was one of the times. Um, and, uh, so we would go and visit my wife went every week. I went when I could get off of work and, um, we would go and bring them supplies, food, stuff like that. But that whole, that, the, the, uh, the ministry for, um, going and uh, visiting, People at the detention center was actually organized by Mormons of all people, and
1: um, interesting, there were
2: plenty <laughs> of evangelicals that participated in that. Um, yeah, so it was it was very ecumenical. It was ecumenical in one, of, I suppose, one of the broadest senses you can yeah. imagine. Um, but it was really cool because we were all, you know, despite our very different um, theological beliefs, we were united in um, a a sense of being called by God to help these people. I mean, very few of the people, the inmates were Mormons, I, I mean, right. Maybe a handful. So most of the people that the Mormons were ministering to were not even of their own religion. Um, but they recognized that this was a need and, uh, they felt called by God to, wow. to help, uh, yeah, help, help the persecuted. Wow.
0: Wow. That's, yeah. that's incredible. That's incredible.
1: Very powerful.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I know that, yeah, I know course. that was a, you know, what's it like for, for you
1: and your kids, uh, It's it's a good one though. I like it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was
1: a good time. Um, yes. What's it like for you guys and and dealing with uh, different languages and stuff, um, dealing with with uh, the radically different culture and then adjusting to to new languages?
2: Yeah, it's it's uh, you know it's ironic. Panama is so much closer to the United States, and um, we we live in the what used to be called the Canal Zone, which it was basically U.S. territory until the mid nineteen nineties. Um, and yeah. so, uh, you know, a lot, like a lot of the streets and, and the neighborhoods have English names, but, um, we found English to be more common in Bangkok, Thailand than in Panama. City. um, so it, it actually is, it can be very difficult to get around, you know, you go to restaurants or grocery stores and nobody speaks any English. Um, so that is hard. The kids are learning Spanish. Um, I think they're learning it pretty quickly in some cases, cause they have to, <laughs> my kids on a baseball, t- my yeah. older son is on a baseball team and uh, no English is spoken. So he, be- you know, more or less has to, has to learn the language if he wants to participate in the games.
1: Wow. I love it. I, I think that's such a cool thing to do, like to get that international so, experience and to just to try something different. It's, it's powerful, R- really beautiful. Nicely done.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah thanks father well listen Casey you've been super generous with your time um, and you've persevered through all of our internet issues and uh, technical difficulties and I appreciate that so much (laughs) so the book the obscurity of scripture disputing sola scriptura and the protestant notion of biblical perspicuity Uh, Casey where can they find this book
2: um, well, I'd encourage folks to buy it from the publisher's website, Emmaus Road Publishing, and just Google that, um, or just Google the obscurity of scripture, and Emmaus Road's website will pop up. I Actually, I'm not sure it's even available on Amazon. It's sold out a couple of times on Amazon. Congratulations. Um, I'm not awesome. sure that Amazon... Yeah, I'm not sure Amazon has gotten new copies yet. It might be available again. The last time I checked it a week ago, it was still not available on Amazon. Um, so actually, you should probably just buy it from the publisher because it's the easiest place to get it. Um but, uh, we'll that, throw a you know, link in the a, show notes yeah. yeah thank you of course awesome. thank you
0: for coming on the show we appreciate well, it well
1: thanks Casey Yeah.
2: thank you so much for having me It's a real pleasure
0: hey everybody I hope you enjoyed the show if you'd like to further support The Tangent please consider subscribing or following on your preferred platform following us at the tangent underscore catholic on Instagram or even donating at veritascatholic.com Thank you for all
2: your support. God bless.